Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is a bit of an extended text, so we will read through verse 20 today. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still con- being condemned as a sinner? And why, do not ev- and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slander- slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written... None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we move into today's text, and there is a lot here, uh, we're not going to get to every little piece of today's text, um, but instead we're really going to major on the quote that we find in the middle of this today, verses 11 through 18. We'll get there in a few minutes. Um, Just a quick recap, as a reminder, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and it is a church that contained both Jews and Gentiles which means it is a church unlike probably any church that you've ever really been a part of. And, and you can just look around you this morning, right? Um, we're pretty homogenous here, and this is somewhat normal for churches, not only here in America, but really around the world. Um, we tend to self-segregate, don't we, right? So we connect with people who are in uh, similar life stages, who are in a similar socioeconomic status. We look around and we see people who are kind of like us, who maybe have a similar background as us. And that's not like a 21st century American thing. That's a human thing that humans have done throughout the centuries. You can look back through the pages of history and see this happening. Um, and I think we do this. I think we self-segregate because it makes life easier for us, right? Whenever we spend time with people who are like us and who think like us and who maybe have the same kind of level of resources that we have, life is easier because we're not constantly living in conflict with other cultures. We're not constantly butting up against other ways of thinking or other ways of living life. 
Not the case, however, for the church in Rome, and honestly for many of the early Christian churches in this part of the world. Um, The Jewish culture, which was shaped largely by the law of Moses and by things that we've talked about, like the holidays, the Jewish holidays, like Passover and things like that, and also by the specter of being the, quote, chosen people of God, it created a very distinct culture within the Jewish Christian groups. And those groups were constantly colliding with the Gentile Christians, who honestly didn't know a whole lot about Judaism and honestly didn't care a whole lot about Judaism. This interesting thing was happening in that Jesus was a Jew. He was the Jewish Messiah. He was the king of the Jews. And yet, as Gentiles started to follow Christ, They saw it as a conversion to discipleship, but they didn't really see it as a conversion to Judaism, right? So they were not really thinking, man, I have to become a Jew in order to follow Jesus. They just thought, well, I'm following Jesus now. Many of the Gentiles in Rome came out of a polytheistic culture, which meant they worshipped a pantheon of gods, a multitude of gods. Um, One writer that says of the Apostle Paul says he was bringing his gospel into a Rome that was already, quote, crammed full of other gods. Um, And in Roman polytheism, it was believed not only that there were many gods, but those gods controlled all of the different elements of life. And a prevailing cultural idea was that it was actually the monotheistic religions like Judaism, the the religions that worshipped one god, it was those religions who were the ones who were weird and superstitious. We have the opposite thing in today's culture, right? We, we live in a culture that has primarily been shaped by Judeo-Christian values, which means monotheistic religion. And so we look at polytheistic religion in today's world as being weird and superstitious. But during Paul's time in the city of Rome, the opposite would have been true. And so these cultures are coming together. Uh, Paul is speaking into the midst of all of this stuff. And um, his primary task here at the beginning of Romans is to convince all of his readers of something, and I think this includes us, is to convince them of something that maybe you don't think about yourself. And that is that you are evil. You are evil. And some of us might hear that and want to snicker a little bit. But, but let me just throw this out there this morning. Could it be that for many of us, that one of our biggest issues is that we don't actually believe that about ourselves. Could it be that for many of us, that one of our biggest issues is that we we want to believe in Christ, rather as a person or as the Messiah, but what we don't really want to believe is that we are actually people who are in need of saving, that we're actually people who are in need of a Savior, that we are actually people who at our core are not just inherently good, At this point in Romans 3, Paul has turned his attention specifically to the Jews because the Jews, even the ones who believed Jesus was the Messiah, they also wanted to believe that they would just be saved because they were Jews. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. They believed God would save them, one, because they possessed the law. It was just something that they had, and they thought, man, I'm going to come before the Lord on the day of judgment, and he's going to look at me, and he's going to see that I'm somebody who had the law, and I'm going to be made right before him as a result. 
They also believed that because they bore the mark of God's covenant with Abraham, circumcision, that that would also justify them before, the, before God. And with, with them in mind, Paul pulls out a couple of passages that any good Jew would have recognized immediately. And if you have your Bible open, this is that passage that's kind of smack dab in the middle of our text today. And it's pulled from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And let me just read this to you again, starting in verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul began this whole line of argument all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. And let me remind you of one of the things that he said early on as he was making this case. He says in, in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God, like the anger of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That was the beginning of this argument. He says God's wrath is being poured out on mankind, yes, because of unrighteousness, but specifically because somehow through unrighteousness, mankind is suppressing the truth of who God is. Now, it's possible you read that or heard that read when we were going through that section, and that just kind of went over your head. I know for me, when I first read through that, it just seemed like, you know, just kind of filler text for Paul, right? And it just kind of went over my head as well. And the more that I thought about that, what in the world does that mean? Like, like how are we, in our unrighteousness, suppressing the truth of who God is? Um, I, I think it's actually a core facet of part of the argument that Paul is making here today. And it's part of why he pulls out these texts from the Psalms. It's almost like Paul was anticipating that the Jews would hear this and would go, yeah, like preach it, Paul, those, those dirty, heathen, godless, uncircumcised, lawless Gentiles are so sinful that the wrath of God is being poured out. But Paul says, no, 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 wait a second, not so fast. Sin is not a Gentile problem. Sin is a human problem. And if you don't believe me, then let me quote to you from one of the people that you consider to be one of the godliest men in the history of Israel, King David. And here's what King David says. He says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is righteous, not even one. If you turn over to Psalm 14, here's how it begins. I think we'll have it on the screen as well. Here's how David begins in verse 1 of Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Devin, will you leave that up for just a moment? Now, we hear the word fool, and we think of somebody who's dumb, we think of somebody who makes stupid decisions. I think we all know fools. But interestingly, in the Hebrew, 
fool in this context does not really have anything to do with cognitive ability. So a fool in Hebrew is not somebody who has like an intellectual deficit. A fool in the Hebrew is someone who has a moral deficit. A fool is someone who is not righteous. So when the fool says in Hebrew, there is no God, he's not necessarily saying God doesn't exist. He's not like declaring atheism. When the fool says there is no God, what he's actually saying is God's not going to do anything. God's not powerful. God's not actually going to punish me for my actions. And as a result, you get the second part of this verse. Because I think there is no God, because God's not going to do anything about anything, then I'm going to live a life that's corrupt. I'm going to do abominable deeds. And as a result, there are none who do, who do good. So here's both David's and Paul's point. The fool is not other people. The fool is you. The fool is me. We are fools, every one of us, because for every one of us at some point in our life, we have engaged in sinful behavior with zero fear of the Lord. At some point in your life, in my life, and probably a multitude of points in our lives, we have done things that we knew were wrong, and yet we did them anyway because what we thought was God's not going to do anything. That was verse 18 of our text. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And what we do is we rationalize our sin. We try to justify our sin. We try to absolve ourselves from our behavior. We assign degrees of severity to sin, right? Well, what, you know, it's not what I did wasn't as bad as this or that. Um, we compare our sin to other people. We go, well, you know, I'm not that guy, or I didn't do that kind of thing, so it's not a big deal. We focus on, we become outraged at the sin of others. Can you believe what they did? I mean, this is, this is social media today, right? It's, it's sinners being outraged at the sin of other people. We seek absolution based on our own terms, our own standards, redemption based on our own standards. It's almost like the Jews going, well, we have the law and we have circumcision, so that's probably good enough, right? That's probably going to reconcile us to God. We're good. And Paul's point is you are not good. You are the farthest thing from good. You are evil. And what makes you evil, it isn't simply the fact that you did things that are wrong. It's, there, it's the fact that there was a point in time where you were faced with a choice. And for most of us, we have these points in time every single day. You were faced with a choice. Do I do this thing or not? But the choice you were really making was this. It wasn't just, do I do this sinful behavior? Do I do this thing that would be immoral? Do I do something that I know I shouldn't do, or, or do I do it? The choice you're actually making is, do I actually believe that God is real? Do I actually fear the Lord? Do I actually believe that God cares about what I'm doing? Do I actually believe that God's going to do something about what I'm doing? 
And what David was saying was that when you make the choice to sin, you are ultimately saying, God is not who he claims to be. Now, this is not a new concept by any stretch of the imagination. It goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? It goes all the way back to the garden. The choice the man and the woman were making was not just about, do we disobey God or not? Do we eat the fruit or not? That seems like the big choice on the surface. But what they were really deciding was, do we believe that God will do what he said he would do? Right? God had told them not to eat the fruit, and and he told them, if you eat the fruit, you will die. So the serpent comes along, and how does the serpent tempt them? What does he say to them? He doesn't say, well, God, he'll forgive you. Or he doesn't say, you know, this really isn't that big of a deal. Or he doesn't say, well, you know, it's not as bad as what you could do. You could do this or this, and and that would be worse. No, he says, you surely will not die. So he indicts God, doesn't he? He says, God told you something that is not true. He's not actually going to follow through on what he said. And so the man and the woman hear this. And in eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, those fools said in their hearts, God is not real. And as a result, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's exactly what the man and the woman did in the garden. In eating the fruit, they said, we don't believe God. And when we say we don't believe God, when we say, eh, he's not going to do anything, when we say God is not real, through our actions, we are actually suppressing what is true. We are actually saying that what is true is not true. And for that reason, the wrath of God, the anger of God, is poured out on mankind. Paul saying this, David is saying this, anytime you or I sin, it is a deliberate act of suppression of the truth of who God is. And in order to sin, in order to continue in that, in order to just walk in that, we have to remove a fear of God from our lives. And so often when people talk about the fear of God, they're talking about awe and reverence and worship. And yes, Yes, that's a huge part of it. But you know what else is a part of it? Terror. Like every time in the Old Testament that somebody encounters the presence of God, what do they experience? Pure terror. Because when we encounter God, you know what I think think the experience is? I think when we encounter God, we have the experience that Isaiah had at the beginning of his book, Woe is me, right? When I, when I am faced with the holiness and the presence of God, the thing that becomes glaringly obvious is that I am not him. I am not him. My sin is staring me in the face. And all of the times that I've said, eh, I don't even know if that's true. And so as a result... God's wrath has been revealed. Any perception that you may have of your own goodness is not in any way based on you comparing yourself to God. 
Any perception you have of your own goodness is solely based on you comparing yourself to other human beings. Even Jesus, when somebody calls him good teacher, says, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good. Now, here's the reality for many of us. If your life is you-centered rather than gospel-centered, then you are primed for a lack of fear of the Lord. You are primed for sin. If your life revolves around you instead of around him, you are primed for sin. Like, like what is the perfect environment for breeding a lack of fear of God? It's an environment where you are Lord rather than him. And ultimately, if you go back to the garden again, the man and the woman are going, not only do we not believe God, we think we know a better way. We think God's keeping something from us, and, and we think we're going to be like him if we do this or this. When everything is about serving your purposes and preferences rather than his, it's a breeding ground for a lack of fear of the Lord. And listen, that's the kind of life that many of us and many in our culture not only have, but it's a life that many of us are working hard to cultivate. A life where things really do revolve around me. A life where things really are easy for me. And while it may seem like a super normal way to live, for most of us, it's also a recipe for disaster. For the Jews, the law and circumcision was meant to be sort of this daily reminder of who they actually were. One of the things that Paul gets at here is the fact that the Jews had been entrusted, quote, with the oracles of God, meaning God gave you all of his rules. And man, what a blessing for you. Not, not because you could somehow miraculously do all of those things. It was a blessing for you because it revealed your sin to you. So if you're just walking in oblivion, right, just completely unaware of your sin, what the law does is it shows you that you are wrong. And that God is right, that God is true. So that's an incredible thing. But if you have no fear of the Lord, or if you're a fool who says in your heart that God is not real, then the law doesn't profit you anything because you're not actually doing the law. Paul says, that's everybody, right? That's everybody. That's Jews, that's Gentiles, even Gentiles who have seen the power and deity of God in creation are, are not necessarily seeking to follow him in all ways, Right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what we get to next week. That's ultimately where he's taking us in this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, no matter what resources you have. And yet for many of us today, it's not only that we sin sometimes, it's that our lives are like curated for sin in many ways. Our lives are like structured to support and promote our lives of sin. And so for the Jews, they had the law, and the law was like this daily reminder. Circumcision was this daily reminder that there is a God and he is not me, right? And if I'm going to be reconciled to him, if I was a Jew at that point in time, well, man, there's got to be like an animal sacrifice or something has to happen in order for me to be made right before him. So, so the law and circumcision were meant to be a daily reminder that for the Jews, that they were different. They were set apart. They were God's chosen people. But for Christians today, I wonder, what are the daily reminders for you 
that God has called you out of your life of sin, that God has called you out of your life of self-centeredness, that God has actually called you to give everything over to him and be born again. Like, like what are you seeing when you wake up? What are you seeing when you go to sleep? What, what are you reading? What are you hearing? What reminds you that, oh, here's what is true? Because if I'm not reminded of what is true, then guess what? I'm, I'm just going to be a fool like everybody else who decides that, eh, God doesn't care about this or that. What are the guideposts or markers in your life that point you back to Christ? I think for us today, we gather the sacraments are a big part of that. Baptism, communion, they remind us of the gospel. They are, in a way, us rehearsing the story of the gospel. But also, guys, the daily rhythms of prayer and scripture reading are huge. Like, these are two of the primary ways that we engage with God in our life. You know, at the beginning of this whole coronavirus thing, we started doing these daily times of prayer, and they were packed out, right? Because there was a lot of fear, uncertainty, confusion, what's going to happen? Everything was up in the air. None of us have ever lived through a pandemic until now. So guess what? Everybody and their dog wants to pray, not just people in our church, but people who are kind of connected or friends of friends or hopping on prayer calls. And, and, and here's what's happened. Over time, slowly, that has dwindled down, right? Because as, as this has become all more normal to us, we feel less of a need to pray. But yet, I don't care what's going on in your life or in your world. Prayer should be like an essential mile marker or, or like guidepost that is reminding you of the fact that God is true and real and good and that God is worthy of our worship and our fear. That God is not me. That God is all-powerful. That God does things I don't understand. Like, I don't, I don't know what he's going to do next. I don't control him. I don't manipulate him. Everything else in my life, I can live under this delusion that I have some level of control. I don't control God. And yet, somehow, he desires to know me and be known by me, and he desires to communicate with me through prayer. And I want to challenge you guys if that is not something that's a part of your everyday life, both private prayer and corporate prayer, I think both of these things have, have value. I want to push you towards it. Don't, don't allow maybe the, the seeming normalcy of our current state to like lull you into this place of thinking, I don't need that. Because you couldn't be more wrong. The same thing is true with the Word of God itself. If reading the Scriptures is not a part of your daily life, I mean, let me urge you in the strongest possible way to incorporate that into your daily life. This is not like a legalistic, quiet time that I want to impose on you. This is me going, what can you do in your life to structure your existence around the fact that God is the one who should be at the center of everything, not you and not me? Like, what can I put in place in my life that remind me and bring me back to the fact that he is the one who is actually in control and not me. Those things are huge. So here's the question I want to leave us with today. How can you reorder the rhythms of your day to remind yourself that God is real and that he has called you to be his? Just like the Jews, how can you actually come to orient your life around the gospel instead of around yourself and your preferences and your desires, 
around him and his preferences and his desires for you. Let us go to him in prayer this morning and consider those things together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word, your goodness and grace. We thank you for the way that your word reminds us of what is real and true. And we pray today, Father, that you would help us to do an examination of our lives, to look at our day today and to consider the question, how could I actually begin to mold and alter, alter the rhythms of my life so that I might be reminded of the fact that you are good and true, that you are our Heavenly Father, and that you desire more for me than to live a life of self-centeredness, which is ultimately a life that says you are not real, that I am the one who is real, and that what I want matters the most. Father, help us, because this is not something that is only unique to certain people. God, this is something, as we have read today, is common to the whole of humanity. There are none who are righteous. We are all fools who say in our hearts you are not real. And we give you praise this morning that you loved us enough to send your only son to die so that we wouldn't just be resigned to death as our fate, but instead so that we might be born again and find new life and hope in you. We thank you, Jesus. We give you praise, honor, and glory. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.